Amen. Thank you, piano ladies, and thank you to the Geigers for the great music this morning. We appreciate that so much. We turn back again this morning to the book of Revelation. And Revelation is quite a book. It's an overwhelming book. We were talking a little bit about it before the service this morning. And how much of it do you try to take on and how much do you try to understand and comprehend because it's overwhelming. Uh, In the wonderful world of printing, you can take uh, a picture and from that create a picture in a printed book. But if you go home, and I know you're all going to do this after church this afternoon, uh, get out a color picture, printed page, and get your magnifying glass out and look. If you look carefully enough, you'll realize that everything on the page is made up of little yellow dots and little magenta dots, which is sort of a a pinkish light red, uh, and cyan, which is sort of a sky blue metallic light color. And you can take those three, at least theoretically, and you mix in a little black for shading. And from that, you can create, theoretically, any color in the world. And you have these filters, and that's how you able to have color pictures in a book. But if you take a color picture and your magnifying glass and you're looking at that detail and you're seeing those little yellow magenta and cyan dots and you you begin to lose all track of anything, of what you're really looking at. It's just you're looking at little specks here and there and wondering, I wonder what this is all about. Now, the only way that it really works for us profitably is we back off and put the glass down and look at the picture and all those glorious little specks of those three little primary colors come together and you get a picture and it looks like the real world if it's done properly. It's an amazing, uh, it's not, uh, it's an amazing human engineering feat of science. Revelation is kind of like that. If you get into looking at every little yellow spot and every little magenta spot in the book of Revelation, you'll drive yourself crazy. I've got about this many commentaries on the book of Revelation alone. And no two are exactly alike. And there are variations on the variations of what this can mean and that can mean. If we get so caught up in that, as fun as that can be, and for some of you, hang in there, keep it up. If that's your hobby and you love that, then keep digging and may God show you more and more insight into what that means. But the book of Revelation is really written to back up and see the picture. And if you'll do that, my New Testament professor, uh, smartest teacher I ever had, uh, used to say the book of Revelation is written to be read in one sitting. You just sit down and read it from the beginning to the end. And if you'll do that, you see this incredible, glorious picture of God the Father and of the risen Jesus Christ reigning in heaven. And it's awesome. And it comes together powerfully. Now, chapter four, where we go this morning, is a good glimpse of that. And we're going to see some little yellow dots and some little red and blue dots. But Uh, We need to keep backing up and looking at the picture. What is Revelation trying to show us? Not John so much. He's just the communicator. But what is Christ trying to show us through this great revelation? In chapter 3, we were working our way through the seven churches. And we came down in verse 21 of those words. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne 
as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So this word throne is a big deal as you're coming out of chapter three and rolling into chapter four. Now I know you all remember that verse from last week. Now John, who's recording this for us, these words of Jesus for us, was the same John, as we've said before, who went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he has seen, as he's writing these words, he has seen the glorified Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was an incredible experience, uh, limited to only Peter, James, and John. And in some fashion, Elijah and Moses are there, but it all centers on the wonder of Jesus. And John was there over six decades, probably before these words were written. And he remembers that. And here, late in his life, he's writing about overcoming and a, a final victory. John has seen the resurrected Jesus after the crucifixion that he watched so carefully with Mary. He saw the empty tomb and then he saw the risen Savior. And all that has totally captivated the heart of the Apostle John. And here, all these years later, he's putting this down about he who overcomes is going to have a participation in the very throne room of God in heaven. That's incredible. I was going through a scrapbook the other day uh, that had tickets from places I've been in my life and things I did along the trail. Some neat tickets, you know, and things you don't want to throw away. Uh, and so you just stick them in a book and your kids throw them away someday. But, <laughs> but they're just little reminders of memories. I was going, master's tickets. I, I went to the master's about 10 years in a row. Free for nothing. I just, people, I, where I, I just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Incredible. So I've got those master's tickets, the little plastic ones that some of you have. What a, what a special ticket to have. Came across one the other day where I went to a Jimi Hendrix concert. Imagine that. Hey, that's good. Yeah. We paid good money to go to the Atlanta Auditorium and get a seat on the floor. And the first note, everybody stood up and stood on their seats. And, you know, so much for your expensive ticket, your $5 ticket. Uh, later, Andrew and I went to Handel's house in London. Handel's Messiah, Handel. Jimi Hendrix lived in the same house. And so now it's labeled, the English people have relabeled it from Handel's house to Handel Hendrix's house. Because, uh, uh, boy, talk about being poles apart, those two guys. But you got all these tickets. You are promised by Jesus through the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. A ticket. An incredible ticket. To be not in some stadium in Atlanta that does crazy things, but to the very throne room of God. What a ticket. I trust everybody here has your ticket. And uh, don't lose your ticket. You, you can't lose this ticket. That's a risky thing to say. We don't want to go there theologically. Don't lose the joy over the ticket that you have in Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. These things are what he's already referred to earlier in the first three chapters. After all that, this is what's got to happen. 
Now here's a crash course in Revelation. I'll try to do it in 60 seconds. I won't get there. But uh, four approaches to the book of Revelation. The first is so it's all spiritual. Don't, don't buy this one, by the way. It's all spiritual. It's all symbolism. It uh, doesn't connect with any realities. You're just supposed to be inspired by uh, the symbols. And there's a sense in which that occurs, but that's not the gist of it. Uh, there's what's called a preterist view, which says everything that you read from chapter 4 to almost to the end of the book is about events that happened in John's day or not long after that or the early, early days of Christianity has a little bit of merit to it uh, and you can connect some of what John is recording here with what was happening in early Christianity and those who are really into that will anchor that together and, and tie it off and that's their approach. The other approach is the historicist uh, approach which was held by most evangelical Christians from the early church down until 100 years ago or so. Uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Wesley and Charles Spurgeon and who's who in Christian biography would have held to this view, which says the book of Revelation and all that unfolds from chapter four on is a description of the clash of good and evil down through the church age. And a lot of awesome people have seen the book of Revelation that way. The futurist approach is the popular uh, theology of the last hundred years and it says, most of Revelation is yet future to us. So there you go. You can go study that further and dig in a little deeper and get into the, the yellow dots and the blue dots and, and uh, search out some of that. But that's just the general view. But apart from what you do with those approaches to the book, there's some things that are profoundly, powerfully clear to us. Chapter four, thankfully, is one of those, I think. And John hears a voice, like a trumpet. So it's some kind of strong voice says, John, come on up here. I want to show you what's going to happen. I want to show you what's going to unpack here and the glory of it. These things must, it is necessary, literally it's necessary for these things to come to pass. John, I want you to come. I want you to see. Immediately, I was in the spirit. A lot of speculation about exactly what John means by that. But he's, in other words, he is very much under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That spirit with a capital S. The Holy Spirit is profoundly shaping uh, John's ability to see and discern and figure out a lot of things that we still struggle to figure out. He's in the Spirit and he says, and behold, a throne standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. There's a, a throne standing in heaven. I uh, came across this postcard the other day. Um, a friend of mine gave me because he knew I liked English things. But this is the, the throne uh, that'll be on television uh, one of these days before long. I know you can all see that real well. I should have put it on the overhead. But uh, that's the coronation chair in Westminster Abbey. And the not too distant future, it's inevitable either the queen's son or grandson is going to be crowned on that throne. They used to have it just sort of out and exposed. Now it's behind glass and protected. It looks kind of rough and graffitied up. It's sort of a strange looking thing. I thought they put it behind glass to restore it and they're just putting it back there to, to keep you from playing with it and picking at it. 
and it has a stone that's kept up in Scotland in Edinburgh. They're going to take that stone out of Scotland, take it back down and put it in the lower part of that chair, the stone of scone or scone. Put it in the chair and crown another king on that throne. It's probably the most important throne. And it is, compared to what we're talking about this morning, nothing. When they crown that next king on that throne, it will be a big deal. It'll be a lot bigger than that wedding the other day that was seen all around the world. And people in every country will watch that king crowned. He won't have any power when he gets through, but it'll be powerful symbolism and a great tourist attraction. And the world will watch that. Now, the, the scriptures talk about, we were laughing about this uh, in, in Africa the other day, about grasshoppers and great people being grasshoppers. And when they crown that king in London in a few years, he will be a grasshopper compared to the king of kings and lord of lords. And John wants you to get that. It is hugely important that you and I understand that. Say, oh, yeah, I know that. I know that. But do you know that on Monday morning when you got your list and your pressures and your agenda and your griefs and your excitements and your team won or your team lost? And, you know, Georgia was ranked only number two yesterday. It's outrageous. When that day of day comes for you inevitably and for all of us collectively, all that's going to be the world of grasshoppers. And John wants you to see that because if you can see that, it will change your entire life perspective and all your value system. He says, immediately, I was, I was in the Spirit. The Spirit was enabling me to see, and I was looking into the very essence, the, the heart of heaven, and there was somebody on the throne there. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And some of you know a lot about stones and precious stones and semi-precious stones. And they're pretty incredible. I was getting on my plane to leave Lusaka uh, a few days back. And uh, there are not too many shops. And once you've gone through there a number of times, you kind of know what's in those shops. And you can only look at it so many times before it gets kind of monotonous and then you just go watch airplanes uh, but there's one shop just before you get on the escalator to go down to your flight and it's the jewel of africa is the name of the shop a little small shop and one little lady and she hardly looks up but in the case there they've got uh, stones mined from zambia polished and cut and presented and you can spend either a lot of money there or a lot of money there that, those are your two options but for nothing, free for nothing, you can just look in the case and see purple ones and orange ones and green ones, lots of green ones there in Zambia. They're the ones that are real expensive, the emeralds. Uh, but all oh, that's just amazing. You look at that and, and what a jeweler can do with that. That's incredible. And John says, no, that's just a little display case and some jewelry shop. Heaven's going to be loaded with this stuff. It's going to be everywhere. And it won't lose its value. It'll grow in its value because of where it is. But it will be precious stones and it will be beautiful and glorious. Emerald-like in appearance. Some of you want to say amen to that? Some of you ladies. Emerald-like in appearance. 
and rainbows around the throne. If you go to Victoria Falls and the border, the Zambezi River divides Zambia from Zimbabwe and Victoria Falls is a part of that and the falls there are twice as wide as Niagara and twice as high as Niagara. And after the rainy season, the water is raging over those falls. The water goes down 300 feet, crashes into rock and comes back up in a spray that goes way up into the clouds. Some of you have seen it. Uh, it looks like a forest fire from a distance, but it's just the mist coming up out of that. But as you go down into the face of those falls and you look right under the rock and the water coming down, you're, you're getting drenched and your camera gets wet and all that stuff. But you see 360 degree rainbows and they're, they're popping up around in, in your sight. It's a pretty amazing thing. John says, that's, that's kind of like heaven. Rainbows around the throne, the glory of God's creation around the throne. It will be beautiful. It will be breathtaking. And around the throne were 24, el 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. So you're, what do you want to know? Who are the 24 elders, right? And all, all those commentaries... You got a lot of different understandings. The most common one is it represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, but the Lord perhaps will explain it to us someday. But you just know that there are uh, 24 representations of something glorious, but they're all focused on the central throne. That's the important point. All those things of importance, all those things of glory are aimed at the central throne, the middle of the throne room. And there they are in their white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne comes flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Again, lots of understandings of exactly what that means. But the lamps and the seven spirits have something to do with the role of the Holy Spirit in heaven and in eternity and in our lives. And all this is built around the throne, the throne room. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass. Kind of hard to envision that exactly. I grew up going to Lake Lanier. Uh, when I was a, a kid in grade school, our idea of a really good Friday was dad came home from work early. We jumped in the station wagon uh, went to the varsity and ate quickly and went on up to Lanier and down to our dock. And usually about eight o'clock this time of year, with the sun still up, the water would be like absolute glass. And our dock faced the biggest open part of Lake Lanier, the Chattahoochee Bay. And all the crazy Atlanta people had not gotten there yet. And it was absolutely like glass. And you could water ski on that. It was the water skiing equivalent of ice skating. Just slick, slick as could be. John says it's like a sea of glass around the throne. It's just like crystal. You can, you can see through it. It's glorious. I went to the Bahamas one time on a business trip. That's pretty funny, isn't it? Well, it really was. But the guy that owned our printing plant owned the newspapers in the Bahamas. And I went down. I was an estimator at that time. I went down to estimate a printing job. I remember flying in with a window seat, looking down, 
at the Atlantic Ocean around the, the islands of the Bahamas and you could see all the way through the water pretty deep down it. It was, it was as clear as the water coming out of your tap, maybe clearer than the water coming out of your tap at your home. And you could see straight to the bottom. It was beautiful. Looked kind of like a swimming pool. John says, heaven's like that. It will be stunning. It will be stunning in its color. It will be stunning in its purity, but it will all be built around the throne and the four living creatures full of eyes front and behind. More hard to understand stuff. And the first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf and the third creature had a face like that of a man and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Now you can go home uh, for homework, get the first chapter of Ezekiel out and compare that to Revelation chapter four. And you see a lot of the same imagery. It's a little different. Uh, there's some variations on it. The church I grew up in, up in College Park, had a little chapel about the size of this seating area over here. And along the wall were four stained glass windows and four pictures in the stained glass windows of a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. I went off to seminary and I came back and went to my dad's Sunday school class and went in and I saw the figures and I said, you know, I, I didn't tell him in front of everybody else, but I said, dad, I got bad news for you. The pictures are in the wrong order. And you're either going to have to move the labels or move the windows and, or, or just don't tell anybody, but they're in the wrong order. Because I had learned that the lion was the book of Matthew and the ox was the symbol of the book of Mark and the man was a symbol of the book of Luke, the physician who cares about the humanity angle. And the eagle is John. And they had, they had it in a different order. And then I started digging to try to prove that they were wrong and found out there are about five different interpretations of the order that those things, I don't mean how many combinations you can get out of four things, but there are different ways of seeing that. But here are these images. And we all want to know, well, what are those about? What do those represent? And we don't know exactly, except that it links the Old Testament prophecies to this profound revelation reality. And it declares again, the glory of God the Father and of the risen Christ. And he says, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings are full of eyes around and within and day and night. Uh, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. That's our song. I don't know how you would sing that. Jonathan's going to write a great hymn about that someday and, and take that. Probably somebody has. A lot of our hymns reflect that already. It's sort of a six-fold description of who's on the throne. Holy, holy, holy. He's, he's absolutely holy. When I was in school, they made us read Louis Burkhoff and Henry Thiessen every night. Two different theologians, different perspectives. And so we were reading the same topic from each of those writers night by night. And Henry Thiessen wrote about the holiness of God. And he said, God is absolutely separate from and exalted above all his creatures. And he is equally separate from all moral evil and sin. Holiness occupies the foremost rank among the attributes of God. An attribute something that's true of God, something that you declare to be descriptive of God. 
And Thiessen, after years of studying theology, says, you want to talk about the details of what God is like, describe his attributes. That's what the, the theology writers do, Tozier and all of them. They write their books about the attributes of God. And Thiessen says the, the number one attribute of God is not his love, it's his holiness. And Revelation would lead us to that conclusion. They'll, I don't know what it'll sound like, but I know what they're going to have as lyrics to the songs in heaven. Holy, holy, holy. We sing that. That used to be number one in the hymn book. I'm not sure where it is now. Holy, holy, holy. Holy. Who is holy? He gives us six things. The Lord. It's in all capital letters. Uh, it's really a reflection of the Yahweh or Jehovah, the Old Testament. The Lord, the God, the Almighty One, the One who was, the One who is, or the One being, and the One coming. And God and Christ are all of that, all at the same time. And heaven declares the glory and the wonder of that. There's somewhere in your 24 hours of each day, your spirit needs to connect with that. That needs to cycle through like a bat. You know, you get these commercials on television and you see some of them every five minutes and you see uh, some every now and then. Somewhere during the course of every day, that needs to cycle through your consciousness. My Jesus is Lord. My Jesus is God. My Jesus is almighty. He's the one who was in eternity past. This is what John writes in the Gospel of John in the, in the introduction. He's the one continuing to exist and he's the one coming. And that shapes my perspective on everything. Full of glory, he will come again. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, well, what happens? The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their crowns before the throne. Everything about your life, uh, it's just kind of like uh, you've been through a closet lately and you do the things you need to throw away, the things you need to give away, and the things you want to keep, and the keeper thing. All the things about your life from an eternal perspective that are the keeper things, the bad things you've confessed and set aside. The sort of neutral kind of stuff is just going to fade in its significance. But the keeper things of Christ in your life are like crowns, Revelation says. And this is what you do with your crowns in heaven. You don't say, hey, look at me. Look what I did in my life. Somebody should have written a really good biography about me. Look at, look at my crowns. Revelation says, no, you take all of that and you place it before the throne. It belongs to Jesus. It was done for Jesus. It was done for the glory of Jesus, for the purposes of Jesus. That my heart might be filled with Jesus, that he might be exalted. And everything I do, everything my church does, everything my family does, uh, and oh, might it be that everything in our culture reflects. It says the elders, the elders are the ones closest to the throne, the ones who understand best, comprehend best, who's on the central throne. They take all of their achievements 
And I, I can promise you, if I could take you somehow uh, into the presence of one of those 24 thrones and say, let's just stand here and look at this, it would blow you away. You'd be in awe of it. But the 24 thrones and the, the, the beings on the thrones, whatever they are, they turn to Jesus and they take their crowns and cast them before Jesus. It's all about Christ. The exalted Jesus. You go in Westminster Abbey, uh, a cathedral's built where there's the elevation of some saint usually at the back. And Westminster Abbey goes back about a thousand years to its beginning, really before that in the older structures. But uh, you go to the back of that and, and to the upper level and the back level and the upper level, uh, and you finally get to the elevated tomb of Edward the Confessor. And if somebody came from some obscure place that had no knowledge of any of the history of it, and they went into that building, they would say, this has got to be a place of worship. And they would go to the back of the room and they'd say, well, obviously they worship Edward the Confessor. And they built all this building to help them worship Edward. The, the book of Revelation says, no, it's all about Jesus. And he is the exalted one. And it's all about guiding us toward worshiping him where we surrender everything to him. Now, what do they say there? The last verse this morning, verse 11. This is what they say as they're casting their crowns. This is what they sing as they're singing songs of worship in heaven. Whether it's traditional or contemporary or whatever it is, this is what they sing. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. It's really better than that. Uh, the Greek text has definite articles in front of glory, honor, and power. So you're worthy to receive the glory and the honor and the power. Well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is it makes it very specific. All the, all the glory, it's not, you're not, it's not, we're going to take some of glory and give it to you. No, it, all the glory is yours. All the honor is yours. All the power is yours. When Jesus uh, standing by the Sea of Galilee, gave his commission at the end of the book of Matthew to the disciples. He said, all authority is given unto me. Sometimes it's translated a power. Same word. That's what is used here. All authority and power belong to you, our Lord and God. Because you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. Don't get sidetracked by all the foolishness of man. We looked Wednesday night at Romans chapter 1 and Paul writing there to the Romans, his great discourse on salvation uh, begins in the introduction saying they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. It's a description of some people Paul knew, but it's a description of our modern mindset. John says that Jesus says this is what's going on in heaven. And they're saying the glory, all of it, the honor, all of it, the power and authority, all of it belongs to Jesus. For you, and in Greek, you can write that two different ways. You can have an emphatic pronoun there. That's what it's got. You created. It's not you created. It's you created everything. The everything is what he said. You created the everything. There's nothing decent, there's nothing pure, there's nothing eternal that Jesus didn't create. 
And they were, means they were continually existing in the past, and they were created. They stand created because of your will. Because this is your stuff. This is your purpose. That's what they do in heaven. They talk about stuff like that. Now, what are you going to talk about at lunch? Uh, what are you going to be singing about in the car as you're riding along? Jimi Hendrix songs or something like that, maybe. Something every day in our lives, not just Sunday morning in here and in Sunday school, but something in every compartment of every day of our lives needs to reflect on what John has recorded for us here, what Jesus wants us to know. This is the throne room of heaven, not some abbey or cathedral somewhere. This is the glory of heaven. It surpasses all your jewelry. If everybody cashed in their jewelry and we spread it out on the table and, and marveled at it, it would be nothing. It would be like that on a grand scale in color and glory and purity, all there to declore, declare the glory of our God. Boy, we got a lot to look forward to. Peter found an uh, old tape last night and put it in the VHS player. Yes, we still have one of those. And yes, we still have some VHS tapes. And this was from our first year in Missouri. And it was at Christmas time. And my dad had come up for the first time to see St. Louis and see how and why we had moved to St. Louis and why any rational person would do that. But uh, he had videoed everything at our church. He fell in love with our church and he videoed everything there. And there was a program at the church and he had the choir. Uh, the choir was a little smaller than our choir here, but they were good. I mean, everybody in there, they were really a good choir. And the choir director was the band director for the University of Missouri at St. Louis. So he was almost as good as Jonathan. Really not quite as good as Jonathan, but he was good. So that was, but they were singing in the video. And we kept noticing different people and talking about the different people as their faces were highlighted as the camera kept sweeping back and forth. And across the back row of that choir, about probably 30 people in it that day singing, there were three guys, two of them twin brothers, but three guys who at that time were in their early 30s and they're all dead now. And they all died in their 40s. Long story on all of those. And then at the end of the program, our associate pastor who left us and went on to Ohio to serve in another church uh, got up and was doing the closing prayer and he died in his early 50s. It's kind of a sobering thing to, to see that. Because you think you're kind of invincible and eternal right there, you know, and when you're in church like this among friends and you're feeling pretty good. And it was just this reminder that, no, this, this is not the end. This is not our final destination. I thought someday we're going to see Rod and Todd and Keith and those, and Rand, they're going to be in heaven around the throne. And somehow the choirs are going to blend together and it's going to... You won't be able to breathe, not from lack of oxygen, but just from the sheer overwhelming emotion of that setting. It's going to be incredible. So, if that's true, and it is, if that's true, the Bible says it is true, shouldn't every day anticipate that? Shouldn't all of our values be built around that? It's an incredible book, is it not? Bow with me. Father, we're grateful this morning for this glorious revelation given to our hero John so long ago. 
that teaches us over and over and over the glory of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the necessity of Christ, the wonder of our Creator, the glory of the creation which comes from the Creator. And we're reminded repeatedly by revelation and the totality of the Bible of the wonder of Christian redemption through the finished work of the cross. May that today fill our hearts, change our perspective, guide our core values. Somebody here this morning needs to be encouraged. May the Lord this passage encourage them. Somebody here this morning needs to be humbled. May this passage humble them. May it do that for all of us. We thank you for your greatness and your glory. We praise you for it. We do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. Jonathan's going to close us and song an opportunity for you to give any public decision that you'd like to share with the congregation or maybe just to make a private commitment in your own heart where you are. Jonathan, would you lead us?